Luke chapter 2. I like Luke's account of the birth of Christ the best. And uh, we remember that the celebration of Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. And I am aware that I have to say the obvious because the world doesn't know that. Increasingly, and they're having more fun than we are in kids' ministry. I just try and keep my ears open for what people are talking about in the world. And of course, the world has never been about the meaning of Christmas, but more and more, it's going away, and especially in our country. You hear, I just saw an article just this week. People were talking about that the celebration of Christmas it was completely fabricated, just completely made up. Now, you may not be aware that many of the traditions that we associate with Christmas have nothing to do with the birth of Christ, right? Jesus was not born on December 25th. Are any of you shocked by that? When the shepherds were out in their fields watching their flocks by night, it meant it was not in winter. It was in a season, a time of the year, in which they would have been out at night sleeping with their sheep. So it wasn't December 25th. It wasn't in the middle of of winter. The things that we do in our celebration are traditions, but nonetheless, the birth of the Son of God, God who has come into this world, God who has become man, to die for the sins of the world is a factual account. And it all gets mixed up. I read a story. Wasn't sure if I should tell you about this story. I think it's a true story, but it's hard to track down some of these things. Why do we have Christmas trees in our, in our houses? I have a Christmas tree. Do you have a Christmas tree? There are connections with some things that from pagan traditions and non-pagan traditions that are just part of our celebration of Christmas. In the 8th century, there was an English missionary named Boniface in Germany, and on one Christmas Eve, he, wanted, um, he watched as a child was about to be sacrificed on an oak tree to the god Odin. Have you heard this story? Is it a true story? It's not certain, but this is, there's some thread that he was there, possibly saved a child, cut down the oak tree, which was a sacred place for worshiping the god Odin. And after that bold move he, he took to cut down the tree, Next to it, the story goes, was a fir tree, which came to be known as the tree of the Christmas child. And that over the years, the tree was a symbol of Christmas, and and that act that Boniface carried out, it was brought into the house, um, and the tradition just develops. 
It just grows over time. That's a great story. I think it's true, but I'm not absolutely sure. Santa Claus, boy, have you told your kids where their gifts are coming from? No, you're not looking at me. No shame here. The story goes that in the fourth century, there was a bishop bishop in Turkey named Nicholas. He was a wealthy man who secretly gave gifts to poor children. It was after he died, the story goes, that it came out what he was doing, and he was made uh, a, a saint, Saint Nicholas. It was in the 19th century that Dutch sailors took the story back to Holland, gave him a different name um, in, in Dutch, and then the modern Santa Claus in a red suit comes from an American poem written in New York City. A real beginning developed, embellished over time. Do you know why we put lights on the houses? Because the sun is going away. And it's time to celebrate the winter solstice in pagan religions. They were afraid the sun was going away and would never come back. So how were they going to help bring the sun back? Put lights on their houses. So it's fascinating to study history, traditions. These things get all mixed up. And because of the, the mix of myth and fact, the world starts to think that the whole thing, even the factual things that we know in the Bible, they were also embellished. Because you see, they just generally think the Bible is an embellishment, which is an intellectual word for a lie. You remember when Luke began his gospel, he said, that he set out to set in order the actual factual accounts of the story of Jesus. He was sending it to a man he named as Theophilus, which means lover of God. And it was intent to sort out fact from fiction and give to us the things that we could count on God sent his son into the world. That's pretty awesome. How do you prove something like that as fact? And so every little detail is documented. The glory of God had departed from man. When we look at the world, we do not see the world that God created. Man knew the presence of God. Man knew the power and the peace of God. And it was in the garden when sin came into the world that is when darkness came in, spiritual darkness. And from that time forward, every person born into the world would be born separate from God, not knowing the life of God, which is the very purpose that God intended for you and for me to know him personally. Jesus said in John 17, three, that life is in knowing him and in knowing the father. And that very word knowing 
is gnosko. It means to, to know someone or to know something by experience. I don't know about God. I know God. That's entirely different. Religion talks about God. I was sitting at my kitchen table once with a Jehovah's Witness. And he would say, well, we, we call God by the right name, Jehovah. And I, would, I pointed out that Jesus said to pray. How did Jesus say to pray? Our Father, and I said, very nicely, I said, you call him Jehovah because you don't know him. I call him Father because he's my father. They, they know about God. But they don't know God. And God intended for you to know him. To have a personal, experiential relationship with him. To know his glory. And here in the birth of Jesus, the glory of God is returning in this child. John wrote in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's so it's so awesome, it's hard to even take in the glory of God returning to this world in the birth of a child. In the facts of what God has given in the Old Testament, there is fact after fact after fact where he would be born. He would be in a stable, then he would be in Bethlehem where he would be uh, born in Jerusalem, but he would be from Bethlehem. And you start to list out these facts, and there's so many of them, you realize this can't be random. This can't just be some baby born somewhere to a young girl. And God made it so specific that we would not miss the birth of his son. Jeremiah 1.12 is an amazing verse. God says, I'm watching over my word to perform it. I'm watching over my word to perform it. In Luke chapter 2, Luke then writes, it came to pass in those days. That's a mouthful right there. In those days, when Rome is ruling the world, when one man, by his word, is controlling things, by their force, that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or taxed. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So notice the facts that if it's wrong in any way, we could figure this out. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, 
his betrothed wife who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I think it's amazing how God worked through this young couple, Mary and Joseph. They were just like us. They were not sinless. Even Mary was a sinner like us. It's so easy to, you know, embellish the story into something that is more fancy than it is. But Rome took a census every 14 years. That meant people had to return to the place of their family, and it was for the purpose of tax. Each male had to return to the city of his fathers to record his name, occupation, property, family, vaccination record. Oh, I think I just put that in there. And as authoritarian as it was, God used it. I love to see how God works when man thinks he's in control. It's not right that they should have to travel during this time. And yet, God used it to fulfill his very purpose. Or why would Mary and Joseph have traveled the 70 miles about from Bethlehem to Jerusalem? They wouldn't have. And yet, that's where the Son of God would be born. Because there were so many people then in in. Uh, in Bethlehem, I said Jerusalem, for the census, there was no place for them to stay. And that's why he was born in an inn or a manger. God promised the Savior would be a man, not an angel. These are important facts. As the cults are trying to figure out who Jesus is, he would be born a man, not an angel, a Jew, not a Gentile, from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, and all of this happened just as the scriptures had said in the Old Testament. If any of this is wrong, if any of this is not fulfilled as the scripture had said, do you know that we could say, well, he's not the Messiah? It all matters. There is the announcement of the angels at verse 8. There were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone, shone round them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, the Messiah. This will be the sign for you, or the proof. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praying God, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace 
goodwill toward men. It's a nice story for us to hear about the angels' announcements to the shepherds. It's in our stories, in our Christmas cards, and it happened exactly that way. But in the Jewish culture, this was not a good thing. Because you see, in their class system, their social system, shepherds were not looked on fondly. They were, they were at the low end of the, the ladder. They were dirty. They were unclean spiritually because of what they did as an occupation. They weren't allowed to even go to the temple to worship because of their occupation. They were not just middle-class working people. They were, they were poorer outsiders. And the fact that the first announcement would go to them tells you about the heart of God. It is thought that possibly they were shepherds who raised sheep for temple sacrifice. Because you see, lambs were sacrificed at the temple twice a day. That meant they need a huge supply, regular, regular, you know, supply of sheep for the sacrifices. So they may have been the, the temple shepherds, so to speak. And they're the ones who would be given the announcement that the Lamb of God is born. He has come into the world. But it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. And it's interesting that the angel tell, gives them a sign, go, you're going to find him, and here's the sign that is essentially proof. Have you ever felt like God was speaking to you and you're thinking, was that really the Lord? And then something confirms it. I've had that happen to me before. It's interesting that you think, wait, did that really just happen? And yet, and so they were given, here's the sign you're going to go find. Why would we find a babe lying in a manger wrapped in these, in these clothes, these cloths? The announcement is peace on earth. And so critics have said that there's never been peace on earth since the birth of Christ. But that's really not what the angels were saying. They weren't saying that all of a sudden there's going to be peace on earth just because this child is born. Uh, a better translation is that there would be peace among people of goodwill. In other words, among those who will receive him, they are the ones who will experience peace on earth. They will have peace in their hearts. The reaction of the shepherds is amazing. Verse 15. And so it was when the angel had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger and when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. As it was told them. Again, we see that Luke is merely just documenting the accounts of the witnesses. He's not trying to manufacture anything or add to it. He's trying to sort it out so that you and I will have a confidence in the facts of the birth of the Son of God. And because the shepherds weren't really men of any power, they were not important people in social standards, they really, by investigating this and telling everybody what happened, they personally had nothing to lose. They were already nobodies. They were just like us. They were just excited to be part of this story. But they did say, let's go see this thing that the Lord has made known to us. We can respect how practical they were. So many times when I tell people about the things in the Bible. I don't expect people to just automatically believe me. Now, I've spent over 30 years studying the Bible. And I look back and I, I realize what an amazing privilege I had. And the teachers that I had in my life, it was extremely unusual for the teachers that I've I've heard or known Chuck Smith, Walter Martin, David Hawking, Chuck Missler. Do you know who Walter Martin is? He was known as the Bible Answer Man on the radio all through the 70s, the 80s. He wrote The Kingdom of the Cults, a thick book, which is a standard research book for pastors and people in ministry. And yet the, he was a, my Sunday school teacher, an adult Sunday school class. Pastor Chuck Smith, Chuck Missler. And it became so exciting for me to discover the Bible. After growing up in church and not really, really knowing the design of the Bible, the power of God's word. It was then in my 20s that it all just kind of exploded. And me, a young man who was really not interested in anything more than um, playing drums, really. I got excited about studying the Bible. And it was hard for me because I, I think I barely got out of high school. I, I can't even tell you a book I ever read. And yet I knew this was it. And I knew I had to put the work in. If there was anything, I, I was tenacious. I would practice drums three and four hours a day. I would, I, when I was a gymnast, I would work out hours a day. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't the smartest, but I could, I could work harder than others. And I knew it, I would slowly just get it. And I, I remember in my 20s and 30s, I thought, 
you know, when, when I'm older, this is going to pay off. And just the other day in, in the car, my oldest daughter is doing a podcast with a, a, a woman and her ministry. She goes, Dad, we're, we need some Bible stuff about the birth of Jesus. Do you know any? Kids, they're amazing. I said, well, write these down, Micah 5, 2, 1 John, uh, you got Daniel, um, and then 1 John 3, and she goes, you just knew that? I mean, I, and when she was two years old, in three and four, I would sit on my couch with stacks of, of books, commentaries to read, and thinking someday this is going to pay off. <laughs> it was hard, hard work. We didn't have this thing called the interweb, the internet, where you can look up anything at any time. I just became fascinated by the design and the authority of God's word. And it worked. See, the thing is, it worked. It wasn't just something exciting to study. I could see it did, it accomplished something. Number one, it changed my life. It made me into a different person from what I was before, which was pretty clueless. Pretty stunted in my growth, being the child of an alcoholic. Not very clear-minded, not very emotionally developed. As I tell people, I was a millennial before there were millennials. Not really able to have a work ethic. I didn't know how to work or handle responsibility. But I could see that the word of God affected my brain, my very brain and my ability to think. And if anything, I got, I thought, God, you, you can make me into whatever you want me to be. And I like the fact that these ordinary, even socially outcast shepherds they just they just went and checked it out let's go see if this is true and i was i would just do that over and over let's verify this you know so often people hear bible verses and they don't know if what they've been told is true well my pastor said my pastor said pastors get things wrong I didn't want to just believe something. I wanted to know that what I believed was true. And when I talked to people in other religions, which I used to do all the time, sitting with an older man at my kitchen table in Orange, California, I think I was 29 years old. He had been a Jehovah's Witness for about a thousand years, I think literally like 50 years, and he was going to set me straight. And that old man showed up at my door every Saturday morning. He irritated me so much. But the Lord used him to provoke me to study the Bible, because you see, I didn't have an answer for him. I would say, well, we Christians believe 
that Jesus is the son of God and he died for our sins and we're saved by faith. And he would say to me, yeah, we believe that too. Now, I knew he didn't believe that, but he wouldn't tell me. And so I would, I found books. I think I've told you this before. I know a a boatload about Watchtower Theology. And so they believe God created Jesus as an angel, Michael the archangel. That when Jesus came to the earth, he, he died for original sin, not your personal sin. He wasn't crucified on a cross. When he rose, he didn't rise bodily. He rose as a spirit creature. It just goes on and on and on. And this old man would tell me all of the stuff they would believe. And at one point I said, you know, how do you know that what you believe is true? That was the first thing I ever said after probably five meetings where he just opened his mouth and he didn't have an answer for me. I said, okay, I hear what you're saying. How do you know that what you believe is true? How do you know? His wife turned around and looked at me. He says, well, you just feel it. I said, really? Really? What about these people in other religions, in Islam, in Hinduism, the Buddhists? They feel that what they believe is true. Do you think that what they believe is true? Well, no. Well, how do you know? And all of a sudden, it all, the house of cards fell apart. I was taught the Bible as a child. I was the little kid in Sunday school yelling. But at some point, I wanted to know if it was true. And let me tell you, you can ask every question and you will get an answer. There has never been an archaeological discovery that has disproven the Bible. Never. Historical records in other countries, Egypt or Persia or other places, there has never been a historical record uncovered in any of these other countries that has disproven the Bible. There is more evidence to support the documents of the Bible and the historical account than you would ever even realize. Every time they turn over a shovel in Israel, people or critics are going, this is it. We're going to disprove the Bible. And it does just the opposite. The Dead Sea Scrolls. At one point, they thought that Herod was not a real character. And then they found a stone with an engraving of his name on it in Israel many years ago. It just goes on and on. And it's amazing how much evidence there is. And I, this, I just love the fact that these shepherds went and they just said, let's go see if it's true. I wish people, you and more people would just say, let's see if this, this is true. And it's fascinating to talk to critics who are sure that they know the real story of the the myth of the Bible account. And their research amounts to nothing more than reading the book of another critic. 
who got his research by reading the book of another critic, who got his research by reading the book of another critic. And you know what we call that? It's not research. We call that an echo chamber. They're talking to themselves as intellectuals thinking that they've discovered something. They don't get out of the bubble and talk to us. They stay in their little group and talk to each other. Now that, you hear about that echo chamber. You hear about that in politics. We hear about that in liberal politics or certain parts of politics. They're just talking to themselves. I, you know, it's okay to get outside of the safety of Christianity and talk to critics, but really question them. Where did you get your information? Well, I heard it from this other person. Well, where did they get it? Well, they heard it from another person. And you realize they didn't do any actual research. And it's amazing to get out of the the Christian bubble. You know, we have an echo chamber too. The Christian bubble, where we're just talking to each other and, and hyping each other up. Jesus, the Son of God, came into the real world to die for the sins of the world who have believed all kinds of stories. But even in the the mix and the confusion of all these stories, do you know that God has revealed himself to peoples and tribes around the world throughout history? They know little glimpses of who God is. And the way that we know that is by missionaries who have gone out into the world to remote tribes who have never seen white people or Westerners. And over and over, missionaries have come back and said, we thought we were going to tell them about Jesus and the Bible, something they had never heard of before. And over and over, they will get there. And as they breach the language barrier, they find out they have been waiting for the white people. Someone in our village had a dream, a vision. The sky God has told us two men are going to come and tell you about the lost book. It is so fantastic, you would think I'm making this up. But it's been documented over and over by missionaries. Just as God personally revealed himself to Abram, in, in, the, in the Ur of the Chaldees, back there in Genesis, that story gets repeated over and over again throughout history. So people in other parts of the world or other religions breach the, breach the, the barrier and find out what they do know. And you will become a missionary. And to do that, you just need to investigate the facts, as Luke has done. But we go from 
the practical reaction of the shepherds to the reaction of the Jewish leaders. And you would think they, knowing the scriptures, would check things out. What's interesting is that they did not even take the time to travel five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to go see if this is true. That, that was all it took. I said 70 miles earlier. It was, it was five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. You can go to Bethlehem now. And yet they who knew the scriptures were not even willing to check it out. When Jesus was a small child, the wise men, the magi show up and they ask Herod, where is the child born, the king of the Jews? Well, that freaked out Herod because he thought he was the king of the Jews. But what's fascinating is who were these wise men? Where did they come from and why did they follow a star to Bethlehem? Why would they even do that? It's thought, it's likely uh, thought that they were from Persia. And so you say, why would they even care or know about this star? And you trace it back to when the Jews were in Persia. And they would have told the stories of the coming birth of the Messiah. So God revealed himself to them. And they were willing to come and check it out. Check it out uh, over and over. Read history books. But all of that is not just to be full of more Bible knowledge and say, yes, I know history now. It's so that you can be absolutely sure that the Bible is reliable so that you will commit your life to Jesus Christ. The point is not to be right. The point was not to win a debate with my Jehovah's Witness friend, but to win them to Christ. Because at first I would debate with people to win. And then I realized this isn't doing any good. This isn't helping them at all. And I started to really just have compassion for them. And I thought, look, if I'm wrong, that's fine. I don't want to be wrong and go to hell. I don't want to win an argument with you and go, aha, my scripture beats your scripture. We both want the same thing. Don't you want to be right with God? Yes, I want to be right with God. I want to investigate this so that my life is right with God. Don't you want that? Yes, I want that. So let's together investigate this. And if I'm wrong, I'm okay to be wrong because I want to be right with God. But if you're wrong, my friend, what will you do? Well, I don't know. I'm not wrong. I said, well, hypothetically, if what you were taught at the kingdom hall or wherever you go, 
if it was wrong and you actually did investigate it and get outside of your echo chamber, what will you do? Because you see, Jesus died for the world. Jesus died for us. We in our Western culture who are used to being Christianized, do you know that all of you, your ancestors at one time worshiped idols? Do you know this is a shocking revelation to you? If you're English or German or Irish or Scottish or from California, (laughs) all of our ancestors at one point worshiped idols. They were all pagan. No one was born a Christian. It was the effects and the power of the gospel that changed countries and cultures and set in motion righteousness. And I pray this holiday, this Christmas, no matter what you're going through, if it's difficult or blessed time, that you are assured that the Lord is with you. There is peace in the hearts of those who have received him. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to receive communion together, actually, as we close the service. And Jesus said, as often As you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. Communion is associated with Passover and the Easter celebration, the when we remember the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the bread, he said, this is my body broken for you. He took the cup, which was part of the Passover supper. And he said, this cup is my blood shed for you. For the remission of sins. And as often as you do partake of these things, you remember me. He wants us to remember. Remember that he's already paid the price to cleanse you of your sin, to deliver you from debt, that you now can know God. We're not talking about God. We are with him. Emmanuel, God with us is what the name Emmanuel means. God is with us.